0: I am Dana El Masri, and you are listening to On the Nose, a perfume podcast, but not just a perfume podcast. I'll be talking to artists, fellow perfumers, and everyday people about scent, culture, society, and how we follow our noses just as much as we follow our intuition. Today I'm with the esteemed and knowledgeable Caro Verbeek. Caro is an art historian and curator with a special focus on the lower senses, which includes smell. She's currently working on her PhD on art historical smells at V University, currently still, yes, despite COVID. Uh, with IFF and teaches the preliminary course, The Other Senses, at the Royal Academy of the Arts, or Arts, The Hague, as well as creating olfactory tours and interventions for museums, and creating the only scent platform in the Netherlands called Odorama at Mediamatic Amsterdam. We had met in um, November of, I want to say 2015.
1: Yeah, was this 2015? It feels like five years ago. Yeah, probably. Around, right? And I was trying
0: to figure out what class you were teaching because I went to two seminars. There was one seminar at the Sensory Studies Department at Concordia University here, which was such a surprise to me. And there, there was a man called Charles Spence, and there was a seminar about cross-modal research Uh, and aesthetic imagination, and then a few days later, I think it was your talk on futurism.
1: Yeah, it was about uh, indeed about futurism, so the Italian art movement from the um, 1910s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, they were active for four decades, and they were uh, really interested in synesthesia and cross-modality, but specifically smell to color and smell to shape synesthesia so maybe that's also why we met because um for smell synesthetic uh, capacities
0: absolutely and it was also one of the very few times if if the first time i'd actually ever met a historian or an art historian who was specifically focusing on the so-called lower senses uh and that which includes smell And it really fascinated me in terms of just how much knowledge you had, but in and also about futurism, because we're talking about something that's past and also ahead of its time. And there's so many layers to it. And um, it really just quite opened up my world. And so we were talking about um, me, you and, and Peter. And what kind of experience or exchange we had afterwards.
1: That, that was amazing was it was magic and i often um, recall this uh, experience with pete and for those of you who don't know that's okay for those of you who don't know pete de Vos, pete de Vos is a blind scholar he specialized in the senses sensory literature uh, but he's also a synesthete. so even though he turned blind at the age of six he can still see colors when he hears or reads uh, words letters and um, but also sounds so th- the sound of someone's voice has a certain color etc and then you invited us to uh, come to a bar uh, in Montreal and you brought your earplug your headphones and, and the sense, and we were transported to another realm to another world so we heard heard the music you made a smell your compositions that were composed to the music and we completely felt it and we 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 forgot everything around us it was pure magic so thanks again for for that wonderful experience thank you for even being open to that it's not every day
0: that i meet people like the two of you and on top of that pete being uh, a synesthete in in his own unique way so even just having conversations with the two of you about the different perspectives and the different forms of synesthesia and sharing my my life with you was really just quite an honor because i felt like you understood and i didn't have to explain anything and it just felt very natural and very um, serendipitous to be honest. Why art history and why the importance of olfactory art history?
1: I think I can best explain this by sharing a personal experience. In 2001, when I was finishing my master's of history of art, a group of students with our professor went to the Biennale di Venezia, the Venice Biennale. And we entered the Arsenale, which is a really large building, filled with works of art from all over the world. And there was this really strong, pungent, very spicy scent. And I was so annoyed and I thought, oh, why did the curators have a a party here? And why didn't they get rid of the smell in time? Because this is really disturbing my aesthetic gaze. And then after hundreds of meters, I saw the source of the smell and it was a work of art. And I was flabbergasted. It was We Fishing the Time by Ernesto Neto. And it, that is an installation which consists of lycra bags filled with colorful and very fragrant spices like curcuma, uh, pepper, and other spices. And I realized, okay, I'm so visually oriented. I didn't even realize that this that smell could be part of a work of art i have to learn everything about this and that's why i dedicated my master's thesis to contemporary olfactory art this was uh, 2001 and then a few years later i i I kept thinking about the sense of smell and art and i thought hey what if artists already used smell longer ago but these smells have simply vanished and we don't pay attention to smell anymore, so writers might not even have documented these smells or art historians. And that's how I came up with the theme for my PhD In Search of Lost Sense: the aromatic heritage of the avant-garde, which turned into the aromatic heritage of of futurism because futurism alone um, gives us so many examples of olfactory works of art uh, so now my entire PhD is on Futurism. That, that's how it all started. Yeah, that's
0: amazing. Even the nomenclature, the aromatic heritage of, that's such um, an interesting way of, of accessing history and learning about culture and smells and all of those things that intertwine. And that actually brings me to your new project, which is Odorbet. I am going a little bit further. It made me think about, yeah, just your ability to create new olfactory language. And this new project that you're working on with Catherine Haley Epstein is very, very interesting.
1: Could you tell me more about that? Sure. Catherine and I actually never met in real life. We know each other from social media. And she posted something about neologism, so new invented, newly invented words related to smell. And I thought, hey, I have um, a chapter dedicated to this in my PhD, let's combine forces. And we were both instantly uh, really enthusiastic, combined all the words we had found over the years. So, I draw mostly from historical vocabularies, existing neologisms that have somehow disappeared. And Catherine draws from contemporary art, philosophy, psychology, anthropology. And an, an example of, an, of a historical forgotten neologism would be Odoresque. I think that's a beautiful one. Odoresque was invented by Sadakichi Hartmann, and um, he's now considered one of the first olfactory artists and made this theatrical piece called A Trip to Japan in 16 Minutes, you probably know it. Mm -hmm. And the IAO, the the Institute for
0: Art and Olfaction, had uh, recreated it, correct, in Los Angeles a few years ago?
1: Saskia, yeah, Saskia Wilson-Brown did a lot of research Mm -hmm. and and actually recreated most of the scents, I think all of the scents, uh, as far as they were known, um, derived from this piece, uh, A Trip to, to Japan in 16 Minutes. Yeah. And he came up with odoresque, so uh, as opposed to picturesque, picturesque, which mm-hmm. is a historical term all about romantic images, odoresque refers to uh, a compelling smell narrative, a theatrical staging of sense.
0: That's incredible. He was so, yeah, he was so ahead of his time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah especially after i understood the story behind that specific project i i was sad for him because i know that he was booed after he created that project because no one understood what he was talking about and if only he knew how much we revere his work today it would i think it would have changed a lot for him
1: yeah that's very considerate of you to say this because I never really thought about him as a person but it must have been devastating indeed it, it was his big dream and he even invented those machines put cheesecloths in front of them so that he could diffuse the sense. it was such an amazing idea genius and then I re- I read um, I actually uh, read about um, a piece from a critic an art critic and he said yeah it doesn't make sense it's not aesthetic because everyone has different associations to the same smell. And back then it was sort of an unwritten rule, an aesthetic rule that everyone had to consider or had to appreciate and evaluate the same impressions the same way. So if one person associates the smell of cedar to Canada and another to Japan, then it was already considered non-aesthetic because it was not universal. And of course, we don't define aesthetics that way anymore. It it does not need to be universal. I don't know how you feel. How do people react to um, to your performances, your perfumed performances? Very different or?
0: Yeah, I mean, some people understand them right away. Some people don't. Some people like them, some people don't. For me, if there is no reaction, then I didn't do a good job. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at it. I don't. I want to create some sort of viscer visceral reaction within a person, in any way or another. But it just makes me think. Well, how could they have managed to say with any visual piece back then that it wasn't also just a subjective? There is no way to
1: measure that but they thought they could actually measure it and they did so the best wow. persons as uh, sometimes uh, prisoners or people called savants, so uh, probably autistic people they hmm. simply used them Um Signac was known to do this but also uh, Félix Fénéon um, Charles mm-hmm. Henry who had um, a lab at the Sorbonne University in Paris So they put subjects, people in a laboratory setting and they fired all kinds of sensory stimuli on them, be them angles, colors, shapes, but also tastes and smells. And then they measured their emotional reaction and they took these for universal. But when they started testing with smells and tastes, they had difficulty in really defining um, uh, the reactions. It was not easy to measure it. So they too, just like Kant and Hegel, excluded taste and smell from the aesthetic debate. They tried to include them, they wanted to include them, and they felt that sense of smell and sense of taste really had a place in the aesthetic debate. If only they could measure it better, so that's why Charles, Charles Henri came up with an olfactometer because it would enable him to measure smells and connect them to certain reactions and only if he could do that then he could establish an, uh, the aesthetics of smell and he never really got to it, he never really succeeded but there was this Um, chemist Septimus Pies who did he said he claimed that he could measure smells and he did that by translating perfume notes into musical notes so that they were more quantifiable
0: but don't you find it interesting that it's still the only way that it could be measured was to compare it to another sense still
1: Yeah, I think this is um, the problem of olfaction in general, at at least in the West. We have so very few words to describe smells. I think it's true. It is hardest to quantify smells. Now, how how do you feel about this? We don't even know how many smells
0: there are yet. They say trillions, right? So we don't, we have no idea of like the capacity of our nose or our brain to identify how many smells. I know that perfumers, we have a certain palette and so we can remember things because we're using our memory and we're literally counting materials so we can quantify that but on a on a on a larger scale I have no idea I'm very curious by that just because I find that the only way I can educate about scent or if I use it in an olfactory space I have to often compare it to another sense or not dumb it down, but maybe simplify it more than I would like to Mm -hmm. in order to explain what it is, or in order for the the viewer or the participant or the person in general to to have an easier way of absorbing it. So that's why Jasmine Sarai, I thought, okay, uh, I started with the Sentinel, which was the blog and my idea of offering knowledge through scent but it was still very focused and so music I thought was universal and you didn't need any language and it was still emotional and primal all of the same things as perfumery and obviously my my work was deeply deeply inspired and and influenced by Septimus Pies' work and I thought okay this could be an interesting way of of explaining Um, but not everyone sees that connection either, right? So it's still it's still very hard for me to, yeah, express scent in one direct way without altering it, explaining it, uh, anything.
1: Yeah, I see what you mean. But in the end, I think it's really important, no matter which tools or which senses uh, novices use, uh, our students use, to translate or conceptualize a sense, to memorize a sense, by attributing colors to it, music, or, um, tactile impressions, anything—if it helps them to conceptualize a scent in their minds—something uh, Patrick Suskind, the author of *Das Parfum*, the perfume, would call *Duftbild*, so really an image of a smell. If those tools help. I think. Well, it's better than. Mm, not being able to conceptualize a scent at all.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think it's a very helpful tool. And whether you call it synesthesia or cross modality, I think cross modality might be a, a more suitable term for those of us not synesthetes. Intermodal perception. Intermodal perception. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I'm always wondering, are you. Um, a synesthete? Or are you really strong and really sensitive to cross-modal associations? It's
0: such a good question. I ask myself that all the time because I want to be as authentic as possible. And I had this conversation with David House before you and I met. And he said, if you think you're a synesthete, you probably are. Which wasn't really the answer I was looking for because it wasn't based in any research like me being studied, you know? Um, and I tried to, to participate in some synesthesia studies that the sensory um, department did, but it never came to fruition. But I have done a few tests with other people and I contacted the Canadian Synesthesia Association. It seems that I have scent color or color scent a lot of the time, but the scent sound I'm almost certain it could be intermodal perception, because sometimes there is a slight delay, just like a split second, so it's not always automatic, but then there's certain sounds that always smell like something to me, or that days of the week have always had a color. That's been ever since I was young. So these things don't really change. So that's why I,
1: I kind of say I'm both. It's so interesting because when, when you explained, uh, if I'm correct, that a citric scents, like a lemon, are up-tempo. Yeah. I can really, I can feel this. I can internalize this. I can totally understand how lemon is upbeat, has tempo. Is this more like a type of ideasthesia or cross-intermodal perception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've also, yeah, I've also been thinking
0: about it in terms of feelings. I've had this conversation recently, like, senseless feelings, right? And that's part of the work that I did with this multisensory piece last year called Emotion, with the E being the Sigma. And there were dancers, and each dancer was representing an emotion. So it was joy, anger, and there was a scent um, associated to each emotion and a sound piece associated with that and a color so i tried to make it as multi-sensory synesthetic as possible so looking at senses feelings is something i think would be something that people would relate to um a lot but yeah i think it's a little bit of both yeah and also characters personalities uh-huh. so citrus I say they're like the party animals, you know, because they're so tenacious and they—they're yeah. ready. They're too excited and they're—they're they're just ready to party. Whereas some of the the woodies are—they're—they're they're not in a rush, and they—they they decide to stay and they kind of like spread out and take their time, all of that. So
1: maybe that is also—is that idea, Stevia? Yeah. Well, you know what? I often wonder if the relative volatility of raw materials can be translated into things like velocity, shape because all, all smells behave in such a different way and citrus is really like this, literally, because of the molecules Upwards, yeah um, and so fast could that be why even non synesthetes can smell this, that a, that a lemon is fast And that a a pear is slow. I always do this test with my students. Which one's uh, faster? A lemon or a pear? They always laugh, but they all say the lemon. Interesting.
0: What pear do you use? Because off the top of my head, I think it's ethyl acetate, which is very um, volatile, like it disappears quite fast. Um, and that's the only pair of material I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more. But I thought about it in terms of even when you just put something on a smelling strip and you do a time test, right? And the citrus won't last that long. So you you, you can quantify it in time. You can say a citrus lasts 30 minutes versus a jasmine, which will last maybe two hours.
1: Yeah. And I think that's uh, also what Charles Henry, the one we talked about earlier, he, he aimed to quantify sense in that way. Uh, diffusib- diffusibility. Sorry, excuse my <laughs> uh, And I think Edmund Rutnitska did the same thing. He also quantified smells in terms of diffusibility. Mm. How long they stay, because it's such an overlooked aesthetic element that is almost I don't like the word subjective, objective, but it's almost objective. You can measure it. Yes, absolutely. And it's also technical. It's not just aesthetic
0: in when you're creating Mm -hmm. something. You have to think about its performance and the ratios and how things marry and collaborate and sing together. So it is, it is very, very important in all aspects.
1: Do you also see smells in terms of light and dark? Yes. And shapes. Shape, textures. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, something uh, a scent could be
0: jagged. It could be sharp. It could be um, fluffy, uh, round. Incense has a very like thunderbolty shape. Oh wow! And it always smells like synths. So whenever I hear, I smell synths, like the electronic synths. Yeah. I smell incense always
1: okay you smell incense and it has a an almost
0: like a pewter metallic color even though incense isn't that color wow well that sounds very synesthetic (laughs) that's the thing but maybe i've been doing this 10 years now and i discovered my synesthesia really in 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 perfume school that's where everything really made sense for me uh, because i never really fit into a lot of art forms prior um, other than music. So it's, I don't know if now I'm just used to using this kind of language and, and having this multi sensory perspective on a lot of things, or if it's just learned. It's a little, maybe it's both, who knows?
1: It's definitely a muscle as well, right? Um, yeah. Probably, probably yeah. yeah. Skill is so important for our perception. I mean, we, le- almost in grammar school, we kind of learned that there are five senses. They're neatly divided. These words um, are only va- um, valid for color. These words are used for touch. But of course, in reality, this might not be how perception works. Um, of course, language is, is fallible. It's too complex to simply be represented through the language we have. That's why it's so interesting to look at the work of David House, Constance Classe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh also Asfa Majid, who look at other cultures and the words they have, the systems, the cosmologies they have for the different uh, sensory modalities. There's another thing I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Did uh, a lot of literature research into smell, other modality synesthesia, mm-hmm. and I found this unique category. I think it's a unique category. Um, and it's provided by the futurists, uh, mostly by Marinetti. And he described smells, not just in terms of shape, but in terms of moving shapes. So there are spirals, ah. there are arches. Can you imagine smells this way? Yes, absolutely. I mean, they're moving. That's the Mm -hmm. thing
0: about smells that makes them so interesting, right? They're invisible, they affect us in such a direct way, but they're also fleeting, so they don't last. And therefore, how can they just be one shape or one? Mm -hmm. You know, they're not static in in that way. Even when you spray something out of a bottle, the only way they're static is if they're
1: contained. Yeah. And in that sense, I mean, does a smell really only have one color? Do you associate it to one color or several?
0: I think it depends on the material or if it's in a blend. So incense is still the same color, but I guess when you put it in with a bunch of other things, it does become a little bit conceptual as well. So if Mm. I have like neon graffiti, there's incense in there, but neon graffiti is very neon and bright and yellow, and green, all of those. So there is no like midnight pewter, gray, uh, metallic, it's almost like a vein in there, if that makes any sense. Definitely, yeah. I've also been thinking about people's auras and the sounds of their voices because I've gotten that question before and it made me think, and that's when it made me think, oh, maybe I'm not a synesthete because I didn't think about the sound of people's voices. Because if I was all the way 100%, then I would associate a smell or a color but then I thought to myself, well, I've always associated colors to people, or friends who used to. When they sing, I, there's a color. So is it melody? Is it speech? What is it that's not 100% correlating? Perhaps.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe it's not that easy to divide again. Maybe it's much more intersensory, multisensory then we can even capture in words. Maybe words are the problem. Yes. Because words can only quantify certain senses. And there are no words for these intersensory perceptions. And, and that's when syn- synesthesia plays a role. Uh, I've had one synesth- real synesthetic experience, at least I think it was. And this was induced by a work of art. And it was a platform. It was made by Tetz, Maurizio Martinucci, Uh, David House was also involved and it was called called Displace 2.0. You had to lie down on the platform and then there were, um, there was flickering lights and there were beats and the flickering lights and the beats had the exact same rhythm. And you could also feel the rhythm because it was vibrating and I was lying. I was on top of this platform, on my back, and at a certain point, I wasn't sure if I was seeing shapes or feeling shapes or hearing shapes. It was all the same. It was like two vibrating cones. They moved towards my ears. Um, they were moving, vibrating, and I can I made a drawing of it. I remember the drawing, but I'm. I just couldn't pinpoint which sense I was using, but there were shapes. <laughs> and that's my only synesthetic experience. The rest is more associative. That's so interesting.
0: That reminds me sort of of um, of a sound healing. Have you ever had a sound healing session? So there's again uh, I was told by the the person who was who was doing it for me, she's like, "Try not to get synesthetic." And I'm like, "Oh, ah, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, so I tried to be really, really very much in the moment, but it was also very hard to figure out what sense was what because there's gongs and then there's like this, the, the bowl that is going around. So the, the the sound is is physical. I don't know how else yes. to describe it, right? And so it's a physical, the sound feels physical and then there's shapes to the sound and then there's all this energy that's also moving within your body, perhaps through, you know, your chakras realigning. And, and so there's all of these different sensory elements and you're like, am I feeling this or why is my hand tingling? Is that a physical sensation? Is that a psychosomatic sensation? What is that? Um, and I, I actually want more of those experiences in, in like public. Even with the multi-sensory piece Emotion last year, it was a, a non-observer observed barrier. So there was no one sitting, everyone was kind of dancing through the audience and the audience was doing what they wanted, which was amazing. And now we can't do things like that. So it also makes me really reevaluate how we can, expose this very like physical medium like scent still requires real life right and being there and physical presence and how do we create these multi-sensory experiences and dynamics without or with within the the new modern social constructs
1: this is so hard Um, i've been thinking about it a lot as well Uh, most of my um freelance jobs for museums were cancelled because indeed you need physical presence close presence in order to to hand someone a sense on a blotter or something Vent uh, electrical fans are not recommended by our government because of the airflows and the aerosols yet at the same time in our world of zoom meetings i think there's a, an even bigger urge demand for physical intimate things like smells. So maybe we should start working with smell kits. I don't know. Maybe we, we should start sending each other scents. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Little scented letters.
1: Scented, oh, the scented letter could become fashionable again. Maybe. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I'll send you one.
0: Oh, I'd love that. I'll send you one back. Do you think, or what do you think the future art olfactory historians in let's say 2050, if they were looking back at olfactory culture and olfactory history now, what do you think they would say?
1: I would definitely say they would look back at this period as an olfactory renaissance, but I also hope, because now a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that smells used to be much more important, also in art, in theatre. Um, in classic classical theater, smells were already diffused in 18th century theater. Smells were diffused, so really Renaissance, not naissance, not the birth, but a rebirth, right? Smell culture, which is happening now, and I hope they'll also see that a lack of the proper technical material, uh, technical tools, prevents us from using more smells. From displaying smells safely in museums because there's a lot of fear in museums, odor odorphobia. I think you can hear my baby in the background. <laughs> He's high-fiving with his grandmother. Um we'll have him um, featured on. <laughs> uh yeah, so i I really hope that in 2050 there will be more technical solutions to diffuse scents also over the internet. Uh, more devices that we can attach to our smartphones, so we can really take samples, smell samples everywhere. And I really hope Scratch and Sniff will be cheaper and better. I'm trying so
0: hard to do that. I, uh, this is a project I'm, I would definitely consult with you on later, but I want to do a multisensory children's book. I have been for many years. And I want to have a scratch-and-sniff element to it. I would love I would love to just, yeah, have more sensory education and children's education and teach them young to explore and embrace their, their multidisciplinary natures, really.
1: Yeah. It really sounds like Maria Montessori. Yeah, a little bit, yes.
0: So, two more questions, and I think we're, we're good, because I think I've, I've loved this conversation so far. And thank you for your questions. I wasn't expecting you to... <laughs> Ask me questions. How did Odorama start? And what have you learned by creating this platform?
1: The first thing I learned is how many people are interested in sense culture. And why I created Odorama, it was in 2015. And it's a cultural program hosted at MediaMatic, which is um, an organization interested in bio art, new media art. Sustainable art and also smell. So, the director, after a lecture I did there about smell, he invited me to um, yeah, think of a scent program. And of course, I said yes immediately. And what I found most important: two things. That artists and scientists, scholars meet there and discuss the same topics. So, really different perspectives merging. And that there's an aroma jockey, so people can actually smell what we're talking about. Because I think this is often lacking. When when you go to symposiums on smell, you can see your powerpoints, you can look at things, but you often cannot smell anything. So how are we gonna educate our nostrils, our minds, if we don't smell what we're talking about? So that's the other essential element of odorama. And we discussed topics such as synesthesia of course, but also olfactory design, um, language, arts. Um, There was one on cars, car smells, uh, also on uh, gender categories. Hmm. Um, There was one on on human milk, milk smells. Uh, I I actually had people, I'm not sure if I can say this, I actually had people um, taste my own milk because I had just become a mother. <laughs> it's such a formative flavor. Could you describe the scent yeah, of the flavor? It's very almond-like. It's very sweet and very vanillic. At least my, uh, my milk is. And I thought, wow, we're so afraid of our own species' milk and we drink the milk of another being, of cows, all the time. Why are we not appalled by cows' milk? And why are we appalled by human's milk, even though I gave it voluntarily? And even though it's our own species, and even though it really tastes divine, I thought it was really a delicacy.
0: Maybe because people are hesitant to try anything that comes from our own bodies, unusually? Yeah, perhaps. I would love to smell and taste less milk. I'm okay with that, just because I'm curious. And and because it's, if if a baby can drink it, why can't you? You know, if it's healthy enough for a baby and it sustains a a human being and it helps it grow, how can
1: it be bad for you? Yeah, I think this has to do with taboo and um, intimacy. It's very intimate. But why don't we find it intimate to drink this liquid that that was meant for a cow's baby? We see it as a product. It's commodified. Um, But it's a liquid that was meant for the child of another mammal so yeah i I just think it's it's fascinating i think it's very sad as well that we that we do this this is a whole different discussion yeah
0: but it does come down to visuals and how things are packaged and how things are presented you know because i remember having a very strong memory back in lebanon when i was given raw milk and raw milk had this film on it so i don't think it was pasteurized and i remember smelling it and i remember being very curious by it but i don't remember loving it and i thought okay well it comes in all of these different forms and the reason why we can take it in just like how we can take most meat products is the way that it's packaged and the way that it's desensitized and you're taking away the, the humanity or the the, liv- the living aspect or the soul aspect of that being therefore, yeah. Yeah. Um, we can handle it. So I think it, it comes down to exactly the same thing is that the only way that someone could drink human milk is if we were extracted from the equation entirely and you don't tell them what it is at all. And then you're like, wow, this is delicious. What is this horchata like?
1: Yeah. Other divine smell, the smell of a baby's head which is um, absolutely beautiful. I heard that
0: it's the smell of the inside of your womb. Is that correct?
1: I'm not sure. What I do know is that uh, a baby recognizes its mother's smell because it's the same, the, the, the smell of the mother's milk or the flavor is the same as the inside of the womb. Hmm. And I think there's a gland here, in, on the baby's head, that really it causes it creates endorphins in the mother, so the mother will start lactating. Mm-hmm. So by smelling the baby's head, the mother will start lactating, and then the baby will smell uh, the mother's nipples. So it's like um, a cycle. It's a circle, an olfactory circle of. Mother smelling the baby, and the baby smelling the mother, and then producing milk, and so on.
0: Yeah, how would you describe the scent of the top
1: of the baby's head? The funny thing is, I think it's not even just a smell, it's really an atmosphere. Huh, it's very warm, Uh, it's very physical, but it's also a bit sweet. It's sweet and warm and fresh at the same time. That's the beauty of it, fresh and warm.
0: That's interesting. Does it come close to any musk that you've smelled? Like any of those synthetic musks that you've come across that some people could say, oh, smells like baby?
1: I think those musks are generally much stronger and not f- maybe not fresh enough. Mm. There's a bit of greenness in the, in the baby's head.
0: What scent makes you nostalgic? Since we talk about history and you're in the world of history so much and you're always looking yeah. at
1: That's interesting, right? Because it's so difficult to think about smells in in what they call a Proustian memory. You're usually overwhelmed when you encounter a smell that you had almost forgotten about, but of course I've remembered these moments. And one of them is the smell of horses, because I, I engaged in horseback riding. Another one is cedar, because of the pencils, sharpening your pencils in kindergarten. And the smell of my grandmother's place—it's so you cannot go back to, to that smell because the house is no longer there, and I'm not even sure what the smell consisted of. But just by thinking about that smell, I can really olfactorize that smell. I feel the presence of my grandmother. Also, her perfume, by the way, which was Anaïs Anaïs.
0: Oh,
1: wonderful. Oh, and I smell it? that. Well, I cannot olfactorize that smell, so I cannot imagine it. But when I smell a bottle, it's as though I can touch my grandmother. I can touch her skin. Um, yeah, it's so real. Wow. Peekaboo. 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 Hello. <laughs> hey, I think he likes you. <laughs>
0: So beautiful. Look at that face. I was going to end it on you know, what is something that you think people don't know and or would want to know about and anything you'd like the world to know as well about our world.
1: I think a lot of people think that the way smells make us feel has something to do with the smell, Uh, maybe it has something to do with its aromatic character, but of course it has a lot to do with associations Mm -hmm. and also with our ideas about what smelling actually is. So as a historian, I find it it really interesting to see how the same smells had a fundamentally different effect a hundred years ago. Also because ideas about smelling have, have changed so dram- dramatically. So if you actually think, if you are convinced that bad smells can transmit diseases, then smelling something foul would have a profoundly different effect on you than smelling something foul today. So I think this is my message. the important context.
0: Yes, absolutely. The importance of context. Thank you so much. That was really great. Thank, Thank you. you for your time and your energy and all of all that you teach on a constant basis. Is Odor Bet something like public or is this a call is there a call out for people to add whatever words they would like?
1: We would love people to participate. So on the website you can actually click Catherine's email address you can email her and odorbed is only the visual part of our project but we have a a huge database with over 200 entries now and we really want to invite people from all over the world to um, come up with their smell related words great yeah
0: maybe I'll, I'll add the Sentinel
1: cool yeah please do I
0: think that would be interesting yeah absolutely Please keep me posted on all of your future works. And if you're ever back in Montreal, I know that there was supposed to be something happening here in May at some point, which got delayed till next year. So if you're ever there, let me know. Maybe together with Pete, who knows? Yes, that'd be great. That'd be great.